Okay, good morning. We're here, and it's December again. That came around very quickly, didn't it? It's lovely to see the beacon all looking so festive. If you meet with us regularly, um, I hope that by now you've picked up on the fact that we're doing a series on the Word and the Spirit. So it seemed appropriate to me as we enter this Christmas season to speak from a passage that speaks about the Word, but in a Christmas context. So today we're going to look at the beginning of John's Gospel, and in particular verse 14 of that um, passage. And I'm going to start by reading to you the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John, chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So this morning I want to particularly look at verse 14. And I'm basically going to work my way through that verse just phrase by phrase. But we are going to go off on a few side paths here and there. Um, But if we all stay close, I think we'll be okay. So, starting then with verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And many of us are very familiar with this verse, and I think we can just skip through it without um, thinking about it too much. What it's saying here is really extraordinary. The perfect and eternal God became human. It's an idea that would certainly have shocked the original hearers, and it should shock us still today. So I want to spend some time this morning just immersing ourselves in this one verse. And my prayer is, as we do so, we'll get some fresh sense of wonder of what it was that God did that first Christmas. So we'll start with the phrase, the word became flesh. And I don't want to take it for granted this morning. We know who or what John meant by the word. So we're going to start by looking through the passage and just see how John builds up a picture of the word before he finally gives us a name in verse 17. So verse 1 then tells us in the beginning that the word was in the beginning. Before anything was created, the word already existed. 
So the word is uncreated and eternal. It never had a beginning. And it tells us that the word was both with God and was God. So the word is divine, but the word is not the totality of the divine. God is more than just the word. Because we're told the word was with God and you can't be with yourself. So John is starting to tell us here that though God is one, yet within that oneness there is more than one being. And at the outset this morning, it's really important we grasp what we're saying here. Because what we're saying is that the word is uncreated, eternal and divine, but does not constitute the totality of God. It's a hard thing to grasp. And what John is starting to open up here is the doctrine of the Trinity. And as Christians, we're the only people that believe this. And it's a belief that often comes under attack. But this is what the Bible teaches. And it's really clearly what John is saying here. And it's so important, although John has already said that in verse 1, um, that the word was uh, with God, he tells us again in verse 2 that the word, and if you notice in verse 2, he now refers to the word as he. He says, he was in the beginning with God. And then to underline it yet again in verse 3, he says that everything was made through the word. Without him was nothing made that was made. So the word itself was not created. And there are some that will say the word that was created. Well, it's not. This is quite clear. The word was not created, but through the word, everything was made. So the word then is uncreated, eternal, divine, and the creator of all things. Our whole universe, our earth, even us, everything was created by the word. And then we're told the word was light and life. So light and life describes something about the essential nature of the word. But we also see that he is the source of light and life. These are things that he gives. So where there is light and life, it is because the word has given them. So we're getting a picture now of what the word is like. A personal being who is divine, eternal, uncreated, the maker of all things, the source of light and life. And finally, in verse 17, John gives us a name. The word is identified as Jesus Christ. But even here, in the name that we're given, we're still being told more about the identity of the word. So Jesus, well this is the name that the angel told Joseph to name his son, and his, that name meant saviour. Mary, as you will recall, was also told the name of the baby was to be called Jesus, and the reason given to her was that this baby would save his people from their sins. Christ then, that's a title, and it means King of the Jews. In other words, Jesus was the promised Messiah that the Jews are waiting for, the one that would bring victory and peace and everlasting government. So when we read that the Word became flesh, we have to have in mind all that John has just described to us here about the Word. The Word is the eternal God, the creator of all things, the source of light and life, the promised King and Savior of mankind. It's this God who became flesh. Now, some of you uh, may remember Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Anybody? A few. There you go. You might remember in there, it described a space like this. It said, space is big, really big. You just won't believe how vastly, hugely, mind-bogglingly big it is. And it's true. The numbers we have to use to describe space are so far beyond our comprehension that I'm not even going to go and try this morning to describe it to you. But have you ever wondered why it's so big? I mean, if God wanted just a place where man could live, presumably he could have just made the sun and the earth to go around it. 
Why did he create a universe that is so big that it defies our imagination, our ability to even start to grasp its magnitude? And I think part of the reason, and I'm sure there are others, but I think part of the reason is it serves to give us a glimpse into just how great the God who created it must be. If we could measure the universe, maybe we would feel that we could somehow measure God. But I think, as it is, that we can adapt what the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy said to say something that Douglas Adams, the author, would never have said. And that is that God is big, really big. You just won't believe how vastly, mind-bogglingly big he is. And it's this God that became flesh. And again, we're in danger of skipping past this as well, aren't we? So I want you to think for a moment about what this is saying. The Latin translation of this word uses the word carne for flesh, which is where incarnation comes from. You've all had chili con carne, you know what that is, right? It's chili with meat. Incarnation means in the meat. So you could read this verse, the word became meat, flesh, blood and bones. And if you think that sounds a bit shocking to describe Jesus as meat, well, it is. It is shocking. That's what John is saying. And it is, it is, it is an incredible and a shocking thing. Jesus became flesh. John was writing to Jews and Greeks, but all of them would have been very familiar with the Greek culture. In Greek mythology, it was very common for gods to come to earth. They would come down and they would interfere in various ways in the lives of the people. But here's the important thing. They would come in the guise of a human being, but they would never actually become a person. That would have been inconceivable. For the perfection of the heavenly realm, it could never stoop so low. And here John is making sure that his readers don't make the mistake of thinking that, that God, in the person of Jesus, came to earth in the same way that the Greek gods might have done. God didn't, didn't come to earth in the form of a man. He didn't wear flesh and blood as a kind of a disguise. He actually did stoop that low. He actually became flesh and blood. He actually became a man. The same God that created everything became a creature. The infinite, eternal, all-powerful God became a human being. Embracing all of human beings' weaknesses and limitations. And as we look at Jesus in the manger and we see his vulnerability, his complete dependence on his mother for food, for warmth, for care, we get a, 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 all we're getting here is just the first glimpse of his vulnerability that he took on for his whole life. So you see, the word became flesh. And before we move on, I just want to bring a couple of points of application for what we've looked at so far. And the first is an obvious one. This is a cause for worship. You know, we often look at the cross, and we are coming to do that this morning, and we see what Jesus suffered there, and we move to thanks and to worship. But as someone has said, the wood of the cross and the wood of the crib are the same. Jesus' whole life from conception through to death was a supreme act of humility and sacrifice. The fact that the eternal creator word voluntarily became flesh for us, is similarly cause for worship and thanks and praise. But I also want to suggest that in becoming a human being, God honoured the human body. Now again, it was quite common in Greek thought to consider the, the heavens as perfect and undefiled, but earth and human beings as 
corrupt and unclean. And this led to some Greeks to despise the body. And there are some people today that do the same. I know there are some that worship the body, but um, today I just want to think about those that, that look down on their body. I want to remind you that Jesus didn't despise the human body. He had the same kind of body that you and I have, subject to the same kinds of weaknesses and failings. Yet he gladly became flesh for our sakes. Now you might retort that Jesus didn't have your body. Well that's true, but the amazing thing is that he had a body at all. And the fact is that Jesus didn't come as the perfection of, of, of human, uh, the picture of human perfection. We read in Isaiah that Jesus, a man, had no form that would cause us to look favorably at him. He was actually one from whom men would hide their faces. Our bodies are weak and subject to decay. But the creator of the universe wasn't too proud to come and live in one. So without idolizing it, there's a right sense in which we too should honor our bodies. And we can remember too that just as Jesus was raised in a glorified body, so one day we too will be raised in a body that is glorious and incorruptible. Okay, so back to John then. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the words translated dwelt among us literally mean pitched his tent. And this refers us right back into the Old Testament to the time of Moses. So I just want to follow that trail for a moment. In Exodus 33 we read, Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, All the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. Now you might remember that after the Israelites were brought up out of Egypt and God led them over the um, Red Sea, he led them by day with a pillar of, um, of cloud and by night a pillar of fire. So the pillar of cloud here is used to indicate God's special presence. Now we all know that God is everywhere. There's nowhere we can go and escape from God's presence. But he does allow his particular presence to be known at certain places and in certain times. And when the pillar of cloud descended to the tent, the people knew that God's particular presence was there in a powerful and a tangible way. And God promised that he would be with his people always. It's a promise that he repeated a number of times. One of them is found at the end of Moses' life, just before the people crossed over into the promised land with Joshua as their leader. So we read in Deuteronomy 31 that Moses continued to speak these words to all of Israel. The Lord your God himself will go before you. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. And God did stay with his people. And the place where his special presence dwelt for the next few hundred years was in a tent called the tabernacle. Specifically in a section of that tent that was split off from the rest of it by a heavy curtain called the Holy of Holies. And it was here the high priest would go once a year to the very presence of God to offer sacrifice on behalf of the people. When King Solomon built the temple, the Holy of Holies was moved into the temple, again separated by a heavy curtain. And it was here that God dwelt in the midst of his people. 
And it was just outside, that, just outside the Holy of Holies, which was where um, Zachariah was serving, when the angel Gabriel came and told him that he and his wife Elizabeth would have a son that they were called John. So we see that right through the whole of the Old Testament, God fulfilled his promise to be with his people. And he did that by allowing his presence to rest in the Holy of Holies, accessible by the high priest just once a year. But now, John says, the word has become flesh and dwelt among us. And what John is starting to open up here is the fact that Jesus was the fulfillment of all that was foreshadowed in the temple of the Old Testament. Whereas in the Old Testament, the particular place of God's presence was in the Holy of Holies. Now, the particular place of God's presence was literally walking among his people. Whereas in the Holy of Holies, the glory of God was concealed by the veil, now the glory of God was revealed in the Son. Whereas in the Old Testament, it was the splendor of the temple that drew men's gaze towards God. Now it was Jesus that would be lifted up and draw all men to the Father. God himself had come to live among his people. In a moment, I want to spend a little bit of time looking at the significance of the fact that God lived among his people as, on earth as a man. Before I do that, I just want to draw your attention to a bit of a progression here that is in the way that God has revealed himself to mankind, in the way that he's interacted with them. So we see in the Old Testament, God dwelt among his people, first in the tent of the tabernacle and later in the temple, in the Holy of Holies. And then Jesus came and he pitched his tent among his people. And for 30 or so years, he dwelt among them. But then, after his death and resurrection, he raised, ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father. Meanwhile, the curtain of the, uh, the temple, you, you might remember, the Holy Holies, was ripped in half from top to bottom. And God was saying, he's not there anymore. And as if to underline that fact, the temple itself was destroyed some 40 or so years later. So what happened to God's presence here on earth? Had he withdrawn himself completely? Did God go back on his promise? Well, of course not. In fact, one of the last things Jesus did was to reaffirm his promise. At the end of Matthew's gospel, we're told as, uh, as Jesus commissioned his disciples to go into all the world, he promised that he would go with them. God was still going to be with his people. But how? Given that very shortly Jesus would ascend to heaven to be with his father. Well, Jesus promised that when he went, he would send his Holy Spirit. So in John 16, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And that is the promise for every believer. The Holy Spirit will dwell in you. In Corinthians, we're described as temples of the Holy Spirit. God isn't just with us. He is in us, in the person of the Holy Spirit. But more than that, Ephesians 2, which is addressed to the church, Paul says that you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself is being the cornerstone, in whom the whole body, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So as individuals, We are temples of the Holy Spirit. And as a body, we are being built into a temple, the dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So in the Old Testament, God was with his people in the Holy of Holies. Then for a time, he lived among us in the person of a man. But now, through the Holy Spirit, God dwells in the heart of every believer. God is still 
with his people. Okay, so we rejoin our main track again, back to verse 14 of John 1. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, there's a danger, and it's one that Keith has highlighted from time to time. That as Christians, we can tend to jump straight from Christmas into Easter. But John isn't rushing us on. He's reminding us that for a time, God, in the person of Jesus, dwelt among us. And this wasn't just a time that was simply a prelude to his death and his resurrection. It was a time that was important in its own right. And I want to look at three or four reasons why uh, this period of time that Jesus dwelt among us was so important. And the first reason is that it gave us a chance to see something of the glory of God. When we think of glory, I think most of us think of brightness and visual splendor. And the word can be used in that way. But in the Bible, it's most often used to describe excellence and majesty. And that's how it's used here. We know that Jesus wasn't majestic in his appearance. There was nothing imposing about him physically. He didn't really radiate light like you see on some of the Christmas cards. What John is saying here is that Jesus' character was glorious. His character was immensely attractive and honorable. So in Jewish culture, it was expected that the son would honor his father by replicating his good character. And that's what John is saying Jesus did. He replicated the glory of the father. He displayed the excellence and majesty of the father through the quality of his life, through the quality of his character, full of grace and truth. Hebrews 1, we read that God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions, in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heirs of all things, through whom he also made the world. And he is the radiance of the glory, of his glory, and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the power of his word. And Jesus was able to say to his disciples in John 14 that anyone who has seen me, has seen the Father. So this time that Jesus spent on earth was a time in which the Father was revealed through the Son. So as we look at Jesus' life, we're shown something of the glory of God. We see something of his love, his kindness and goodness, his patience, compassion and faithfulness. We see something of his power and authority, over sickness, over Satan, over nature, and ultimately over death. We see a man who turned water into wine, who fed 5,000 with a loaf and two small fish, yet was willing to ask for a glass of water just for the sake of making a contact with a person in need. We see a king who takes children in his arms and blesses them, a king who rides with people on a donkey, a king who... Um, was willing to wash the feet of his disciples. We see a son who so loved his father, reflecting a father who so loved the world. We see a God who longs to forgive, to heal, to set free. A provider, deliverer, redeemer, teacher, leader, lord, saviour and friend. 
this is our Jesus. We need to soak ourselves in this revelation. We need to gaze on the glory of this man, Jesus Christ. And we need to do that because it will draw us to worship. And that is what we were made for. Not the forced worship of a Nebuchadnezzar or a Caesar. You know, a lot of people think that's the kind of worship that God expects of us. Worship that feeds his ego and demonstrates his power. But that kind of worship is no worship at all. The kind of worship that we were made for is the kind of worship that almost involuntarily escapes our lips. It's the gasp of, wow, when we see something that is truly amazing. It's the kind of worship which exalts the thing worshipped even as we revel in the delight of seeing and experiencing the object of our worship. I hope you've had that experience at some time in your life. A time when you felt you would burst with pleasure. When you've wished that moment would last forever. That's what it is to worship. We only get glimpses in this life. But one day we'll see Jesus face to face. And that's what it'll be like. But we can start now. The more we feed and meditate on the person of Jesus as revealed to us in the Bible, the more we will be able to start to fulfill our destiny to love God and to enjoy him forever. So that's one reason why the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It gave us a chance to see the glory of God revealed in and through Jesus. And that's clearly important, but it's not all. I've said how in Jewish culture, a son honored his father by replicating his good character. And Jesus honored the father through the quality of his life. But what are we? If we've declared Jesus Lord in our lives, if we've believed in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, then what does the Bible say? If we go back a couple of verses into verse 12, we read that to all who did receive him, all who believed on his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So we've been made sons of God, adopted into his family. And if we are truly God's children, then we will want to honor our Father. The greatest command, Jesus said, was to love God with all your heart, your mind, and strength. And how do we do that? Well, we simply follow Jesus' example. One of the reasons Jesus didn't go straight from the cradle to the cross was so he could show us how to live. He wants us to imitate him, to be bearers of grace and truth to a broken and a hurting world. Just as Jesus revealed the glory of the Father, so we are called to reveal God's glory. Jesus ascended to heaven, but he left us as his body here on earth. It's through us, as we imitate Jesus, that God displays his love, his goodness, and his majesty to the world. And that's a high calling. But it's important we don't view it as a duty that we've just got to do. And it's important we get that, because otherwise we put ourselves back under law again. And we, and we just see the things that Jesus did as a checklist that we need to tick off. And that doesn't glorify the Father at all. Ephesians 5.1 tells us to be imitators of God as beloved children and to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So we're to imitate God as children, to walk in love because Christ, our example, loved us. So a child doesn't imitate its parents out of duty, but because they think their parents are wonderful 
And they want to be like them. So they want to come alongside and help mix the cake or to put on their parents' boots that are way too big and walk behind them in their footsteps. Or if you like King Louis in the Jungle Book, when he said, I want to be like you. I want to walk like you and talk like you too. It's the desire to be like your hero. That's what the Bible means when it tells us to be imitators of God as beloved children. That's a true act of worship. And it delights the Father. So so look at the life of Jesus. See how he lived, how he loved. And learn to imitate him and reflect his glory. So we come to the third reason then why it is important that the word dwelt among us. As we seek to imitate Jesus in our lives, the sad reality is that we will often fall short of the mark. We mess up and we fail. We make mistakes and we rebel. And that's not good, but it happens. And here we have reason again to be grateful that Jesus didn't go straight from the cradle to the cross, but experienced life as a human being. Hebrews 2.14 we read, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, so that's us, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that is, the word became flesh and blood. So that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, and this is the key point, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Again, Hebrews 4.14, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus didn't go straight from cradle to cross so that he would know what it is like to live as a flesh and blood human being, subject to all the same frailties so that he could be a high priest for us, able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, able to help us in our time of need, able to intercede on our behalf to the Father so that we, even in our failure, can come with confidence to the throne of grace and know that we will find mercy and forgiveness. And finally this morning then we come to the cross. But even here, I want, to note, I want you to notice the intervening period, um, um, the, the time when the word dwelt among us, wasn't merely incidental. You see, the Bible is very clear that just as Adam rebelled against God and was judged guilty, so too we have rebelled against God and also have been judged guilty. And God's justice says that we should be punished for that rebellion. But God, in his great mercy, showed love to us by becoming a, by becoming a man, a human being, and living a whole life under the same conditions as the rest of us, in the same weak and frail body, subject to the same temptations, and yet living in perfect obedience to God. 
And it's precisely because he lived his life as a man in the flesh and lived that life perfectly that he was able to stand in our place to become the second Adam. But this time an Adam that didn't rebel. And as this perfect man, having lived a perfect life, he was able to bear our punishment. And this was able to satisfy the need for justice and at the same time show God's great mercy. Romans 5. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, that is the obedience of the word made flesh, the many will be made righteous. And Hebrews again, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make atonement for the sins of the people. The word had to become flesh. He had to come down and share our humanity so that he could justly take our place, die the death that we deserved and so make us alive, lift us up back into fellowship with the divine. So the cross, that central Focus of our faith, the place where death was defeated, the reason why we can be forgiven and stand justified before a holy God was only possible because the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Okay, we've covered a lot of ground this morning. As we come to a close, how can we respond? Well, in verse 11 of John 1, we read that He, that is the Word, came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. And that is one possible response. Or you can respond by saying, yes, I want to receive the word made flesh, the son of God, to accept the sacrifice that he made on my behalf and become a child of God. And that's the genuine offer that God makes to everyone. And I don't know if there's anyone here this morning who falls into either of those categories or is perhaps torn between the two. If, if you are here and that applies to you, I'd love to speak to you afterwards. And if you're here and you're already a child of God, well, for you, I think the appropriate response is one of thanks and worship to the eternal creator God, who was willing for our sakes to become flesh and to dwell among us, to gaze on him and to be stirred again, to be imitators of him, and in so doing, to bring glory and honor and praise to our Heavenly Father.